Saturday. What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcon, Summer Falcon Screen, and we are joined by freelance writer and critic Farhat Nehru. Hello, hello. And Sydney filmmaker, as he sips a cup of tea very delicately, Chris Evans. Still struggling on. We do have a lot of tea here. I'm on my third cup of coffee, and we are Film Fight Club. Did you just say coffee? Third cup of coffee. coffee. I, I literally held a cup of coffee up to Zoom. I know, dear listener, you cannot see that. But yes, this is definitely this a, a is the Orca Fafe moment. Fafe moment. <laughs> no, he just wants to thirty seconds to bring up Trump. Okay? <laughs> no, we're it's talking like about it's a, I think it's like a, a strange variant of Boston accent. Yeah, yeah. give me the coffee. I <laughs> so yes, uh, we're a film fight club, and we are talking about a new film that is in cinemas, in actual cinemas. Deerskin. Uh, what was Whoa. the title? The French title? Le Dame, which is like the deer, I think, or is it like? Oh. I'll look. I looked that up. Yeah, Le Dame. I think that was. It's got. Was it. It's got. The only thing you need to know. It's got that that amazing actress from Portrait of a Lady on Fire. So you guys Jean-Nel. are already going to go watch it. Yeah, that's it. It's weird, well, and we'll get into this. It's a little bit weird for yes, me. Yes, the deer. In a contemporaneous context. But I did enjoy her performance in this. So we're going to be talking about that later in the program. Uh, just a little update on things that are happening about town. The Melbourne International Film Festival is in full swing online, running from the 6th to the 23rd of August. You can get individual tickets, wine and cheese hampers if you're listening in Melbourne, and all group tickets to a bunch of different MIFF screenings. I have a slight complaint in how the tickets are grouped because you can't basically custom package. They basically have to pick a package of the 10 that they decide for you. I don't know. I don't know, man. I don't know. I want to pick my movies. There's a fair amount of good stuff. I know. Oh, there's lovely stuff. It's just a very cinephile kind of a whinge. It's yeah, like, it's, it's you don't tell, It is the cinephile. You don't, you don't tell me festival. what to watch. I tell me what to watch. It's played like a real film festival. You know, you've That's got to true. be there at the, in time for the session. Oh, yeah. and I think there's going to be a big crowd in Melbourne who are really keen for a typical Melbourne experience. So I'm oh, sure yeah. it's got some general traction, which is great. So happening about town, Static Vision are going to their 20th week of screenings on- Incredible. Yeah, good on them. 20th continuous weeks, guys. So Friday is the day, 20 weeks of Friday screenings or things over the weekend. Kino Sydney is going into Kino 152. That's not every week, that's every month. So oh, so impressive in its own way. And you can still submit- How many 152 months? How many, what's, how many years is that? Is that? Well, it's, it's not been held every month, but it's going on. I mean, there were Kino Sydney's in 2006. So I reckon 13 years. Wow. Yeah. Good on. And you can submit films there, have them screened uh, virtually. Also tomorrow morning, the Sydney Underground Film Festival are launching their 14th program, which is taking place online from the 10th to the 20th of September. And Take 48 is continuing this year, 48 Hour Film Comp, run by them, which takes place in late August. Also Film Championships are having a competition in late August. There's something else to look up if you're a budding filmmaker. But for now, we are talking all things Deerskin. It premiered at Cannes and subsequently in Australia at the French Film Festival, which concluded two days ago and is in cinemas now. I think it was at MIFF last year, actually. Oh, right. Was it? I think it was. It, it is a very MIFF film, well, actually. Oh, premiere, about it. Double check that. Very MIFF movie. It is such a MIFF. It makes absolute sense. Like, I was just in my head thinking, why? how is it getting a wide release? This is not a... Yeah, it was at MIFF last year. Yeah, <laughs> we, we, you can tell we miss MIFF. We miss being in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, there, there's, there was a good sign regarding this film that we are working in line with what our audiences want. Because when we were discussing what we do for the episode, we'd send a message saying, hey, how about we talk about Deerskin this week? And immediately after that, we got an email coming through saying, hey, 
what did you guys think of deer skin? Maybe you could discuss that this week. That was from Matthew Bulgin. He actually also threw us a couple of questions he wanted to hear our thoughts on. So after we talk generally about the film, we might go a bit into that. Yeah. Thanks for sending the suggestion. Yeah, which, yeah thanks for the suggestion. Please, more people do. Yeah, Truly, truly. And they're good ones. They're, they're, they're fun tangents coming off this yeah, movie. But, but yeah. also it, it kind of shows that there is, you know, the people out there who are listening to us and there is a social media presence or like whatever. You can reach out to us. We are real people and we can at least engage with real, real So if, if you'd like to contact us, you can find us on twitter.com slash filmfightclubau or facebook.com slash filmfightclub. Shoot us a message. And yeah, we'd be glad to talk about whatever you would like us to. Provided it's within reason. Don't get any <laughs> <Yes>. funny ideas. <laughs> yeah, Actually, if you're to watch every single James Bond movie next week, don't get me wrong, I have a lot of fun, but... Uh, no, Glenn, uh, that's just that's you. A that's just you. Actually, no, that's you and probably Simon Waite. Uh, there's the only two people who are actually that keen on James Bond. Who is a critic on, uh, you can look him up on Twitter, an ABC film critic over down in Adelaide. Sorry, Love you, Simon. Love you, Simon. That was not meant to be a jibe. I was just saying, they're the two biggest James Bond fans and probably Glenn and you, and that's about it. You, your fandom is like beyond reproach. We're much bigger fans of Daniel Craig, uh, according to his statements to the press <laughs> of the past few years. So, um, something that's not James Bond is... Deer skin, <laughs> French fruit, something. Oh, wouldn't it be cool if it was James Bond? What a segue! Maybe this is the bold new direction the franchise has been looking for. <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm all for bold new directions, but there's there's other things they could do. But this is too much. This is too far. But no, actually, I, I thought it's it not thought very British. It's very French. It wasn't far enough. In fact, it wasn't absurd enough. In in fact, that's the problem with the film. It's got a tonal mismatch. And it's not sure what it wants to commit to, whether the absurdity is the point or it, the self-seriousness that it gets to, you know? So actually, yeah. let's dive into that. Well, let's explain yeah. what the film is first. So the can movie... You? Can anyone? I will try. I think you can do it pretty well. Okay. I'll give this a go. I, I had to write this down word for word. Dear Skin is about... No, it, it, is, it, is, a, it is an oddity. It's by Quentin Dupieux, and it is starring Juan Jordan. I'm sorry if I mispronounced Juan that. Juan excuse me, who people remember from The Artist some years back, The Artist, and Adele Hanel, as mentioned earlier, from Portrait of Lady on Fire in a non-19th century Brittany setting. Yeah. It is That's about... That film that nobody remembers from last year, clearly. <laughs> go watch it again. Just go watch it so many times. Talk about this. It is set contemporaneously. It is about an aspiring but not at all really successful filmmaker. I'd like to correct that. It's not about a filmmaker at all. It's about you a guy who turns up to a, set, to a town... Thing buys a jacket and has a camera thrown in for free. So he starts filming things. And when he needs an excuse for why he's in town, he claims he's a filmmaker and then tries to play the role. Calling exactly. him an aspiring Argu Arguably filmmaker. it stands and- See, that's the thing. When I was, yeah, calling that's him why, that's why an I mentioned aspiring filmmaker so gives you an idea that he actually like cares about that. It's a key point of like he's very much- no, Everything no, in the The movie is meta, is, but the character is not an aspiring filmmaker. Yeah, There's at least one aspiring filmmaker in this movie. Yes, it's not the main character though. Yeah, continue. It's, <laughs> it's Adele Hanel, <laughs> who uh, meets him incidentally and is an aspiring filmmaker and editor. It is about their relationship, and it is about his relationship with the titular entity of his jacket, which takes on a very strange role and function in this movie. He's obsessed with his jacket. He loves the image he projects out from his jacket. And then he starts wanting other people to notice his jacket. And then he wants to be the only person wearing a jacket so that he can have all the attention. He's also a psychopath. 
That is all fair. Honestly, the, the best scenes of this movie are the ones where he's just lightly goading people. Like, oh, you like the jacket? You clearly don't like it enough. Or yeah, you yeah, really yeah. aren't clear on what this jacket is all about. And why by consequence, what I'm all about. Why aren't you mentioning the jacket? So, it you is know. the greatest. And it's, it's one of those, it's a very loud jacket with tassels. And everyone has a jacket they love. So I think on some level, most people can relate to this, but on, on a very basic level. Look, this movie is interesting to talk about thematically, but... I but don't think any of these visually is not that interesting, and I don't think it's actually executed in a way that sustains interest or is even that deep or interesting in the first place. But to get into kind of what you were saying, Glenn, I, I feel like it's getting at like what everyone wants to do with like fashion or aspects of self-presentation, be they aesthetic or in terms of like job position, just status symbols. It's about like I want that feeling of being the special one. It's also I think with the filmmaking aspect kind of getting at the essential selfishness of filmmaking that it's something you need to get a group of people along for the ride just to realize your own kind of like weird personal vision that you're asking people to sacrifice to give to like i want to make the world like this for a brief period of time yeah I've i saw seen. yeah i saw a bunch of things in the film but in general i i'm going to agree with Verrat's take on it not being absurd enough. You've got a point. And I think my issue with the film is that, look, what the film is representing extrinsically in terms of when you come out of the theater, like, oh, so this film is an ideas film. Mm. It's actually more interesting than what the film is. Definitely. The like what, you, what you saw was like, ah, oh, this could have been taken in like this direction, this direction, this direction, and there's so many threads. So the film that you're making in your head is actually more interesting than the film that you're watching. You're having all these unexplored threads unfolding in your head where you're like, this means this, which means it's about ethics of filmmaking, which means about, you know, what it means about the cinema and stuff. But the actual film on the screen is not addressing these threads in a much more, you know, in an interesting enough way, given the length of the film. and the Exactly. Happened. It is just like a montage of scenes stuck together in a kind of shock take value sometimes, which was kind of disappointing for me. Yeah, on to those points, there is a nice meta element about the dynamics on any given film set. I've been on sets where either an actor or someone else isn't exactly or fair or across a director's vision or a creative's vision. And there's some conflict or tension or just people that are just working on operating different levels. And this plays out to some funny, absurd, repeated scenes, which are funny, but are very repetitive throughout the movie. On the matter of how the film progresses, I actually think there was a nice escalation from, oh, we kind of see this sort of person at a run to the sort of person in the course of regular lives, more so if you're very involved in the creative industry to the extreme lengths that the film goes. Having said that, I think the, the screenwriters very clearly wanted to get to the second half of the film and the big set pieces and the talking points and the crazy stuff as quickly as possible. And I think a lot of the interesting dramatic stuff and the best scene was lost by the wayside then. I referred earlier to the best scenes of the film where it's these awkward encounters, one with a lady in a car who puts herself out there and was keen to be a part of his activities and his creative pursuits, another in a restaurant. And I wish the film hadn't been so slavish to realizing these set pieces when it could otherwise have been much more effective in mood setting as it was earlier on. My thing about this film is it strikes me basically as a student film. I heard, really? yeah, I've heard the same oh, kind that's of, a bit harsh. I, I mean, I'm maybe biased because years ago, I never saw it. I've never seen any of Dupio's other films. I really like him as a musician. 
Um, he has a much more full career as an electronic musician going back to the 90s and filmmaking is sort of his second turn in his life. But yeah, I remember when his first film came out about a tire that kills people, a rubber it was called. I remember reading a review saying it felt kind of like film schoolish and that it was just kind of like a wacky premise and that's it. And this film seems to be showing the same flaws to me because it's like 75 minutes, but it feels way too long. Mm. Um, to me, it feels like he has the interesting concept, a guy who loves his jacket so much that he'll kill to make it stand out more and then doesn't do that much with it. I agree with what Virat said about how it's sort of not it's settled in an interesting place in terms of absurdity or mundanity. I think if you're going to start with the really absurd premise, where at first it leaves us wondering what's going on here and you realizing that something really weird's going on, but then you go for that long, you need to reach really transcendently yeah. absurd levels. You need to top yourself. But instead, the, the absurd cards are played pretty early on, and the main vein the, the film is operating in is of a kind of surreal drama. Yeah, I mean, where... I, w- I was thinking uh, of, for lack of a better comparison, but it was for some reason playing in my head, the house that Jack built. Well, I was actually going to say that. Yeah, was, yeah, that okay. For all of the talk about how weird this is and how um, experimental it is, I was thinking that um, this film is really not doing anything that different from the house that Jack built in terms of trying to present the psychology of a psychopath, only that here there's the kind of quirkier, instead of being direct about the ethical questions, it's being filtered through this um, symbol of the jacket and you know, I need people it's, to notice it's, the jacket. It's, it's, it's more but, a funny psychopath rather than a, you know, self-serious psychopath. But for all the weirdness, we're seeing so many of these like films to get you into the mind of a psychopath lately, like this or Stoker or something. Like, I don't think this film is really offering anything particularly penetrating or new for as uh, attention grabbing as the, the main premise is. There's plenty of examples of classic films, like the arsenics and old laces of the world. Oh yeah. I'm, it's much more entertaining and you get this better idea of their mindset, where they're coming from on the matter of- It's just, I feel like there's a recent trend of these like slick hollow kind of movies where it's like, oh, I get it. He's a psychopath and there isn't really that much more to it. Something like arsenic and old lace is much deeper. Oh, on yeah, the matter oh, totally. of the length of the film, I think there's- you, this could have been a short, this could have been a 40 minute movie. I know those aren't really a lot in fashion, but they're fine and they can be really good. Five minutes almost With a great length. Adele Hanel is great in this and she sets a lot of the tone importantly, but dramatically and narratively, you could have cut her scenes down to three, maybe even two. There's a whole subplot involving money, which you could have just cut from the film, would have cut the fat, would have been a lot more engaging, would be a lot punchier, and you could have got to the really interesting stuff while maintaining the mood from the first half, kind of the second half. Um, on the matter of uh, some of the tonal shifts, they just didn't know how to end this. There was a funny, ironic gotcha way they could have done it, which you could infer from the way he was dressed towards the end of the film. The ending, however, it's it's funny, it's memorable, but it's not that great. It's just a bit of a, oh, okay, we expected it to build this climax and now it's nothing especially special. I will say though, I have expected throughout this entire film, and we talked about it in other episodes, there's so many films that love to deploy deer symbolism somehow. And though this is film is a called deer skin and they include deer. Called they the deer, shy, really. Uh, yeah, they shy away from that, which I liked. But and I also did like the oh, way that the symbolism of the jacket. There's a lot of it has this Mr. Plow type presence, this huge colorful focus throughout the film. And it 
takes on a bit of a character and well, I enjoyed that more experimental film. Brett mentioned how the film isn't actually all that interesting visually. And I agree for a movie about a guy with a weird way of looking at the world, it's shot in a very flat, boring, not particularly inspired way. But there's one scene where you see the film that the main character has been making and you see he's like filming weird angles underneath the, the tassels of the jacket. I wish the whole film looked like that. Like I wish the whole film was giving you that, that weird obsession, you know, and stylizing this guy's passion more. If anything, the awkward dead air of the way the film tries to treat him objectively with the aesthetic, I think ends up cheating it because it's like, all right, this guy's weird. Like it would be more provocative to really try and put you in his head. The other film that was playing in my head when I was watching this, because I had all these references in my head, because, you know, because nothing interesting was happening on screen. So like, in my head, I was like, oh, what if this film had this? What if this film had this? It's not it, genius. Yeah. It's not, it doesn't grab you completely yeah. with its vision. So, so in my head, because with the jacket thing, I was thinking of The Mask, like with Jim right. Carrey. And so I'm just like... If he had a different e- persona when he put on the jacket? Yeah, but even then, even that was more visually and thematically more interesting because it really sold you. Because here, the jacket is trying to be a character. It's basically like you become something more or at least you embody someone else when you're wearing a jacket mm. but even then that was still not explored as bonkersly as it could have been as something in the mask where the physical comedy of jim carrey kind of really did bring something new to the table which was still a visually kind of flat movie mm. if you take out the scenes with the mask that film was still visually flat but it still got something to it so i was just thinking even with the jacket you know that could have been you could have done so many things with it, but it was just like, oh, it's still a, still a jacket in the end. I was just like, oh, it's boring. I think the tone the film was trying to aspire to, but didn't really, actually didn't at all reach, was yeah. the series Hannibal, which is very distinct from the films. Yeah, gotcha. And the very distinct from the books, where it develops into this weird dark comedy and our relationship between two characters and all these incredibly psychopathic moments that you are asked to marvel at, but not really feel empathy towards. And or even really killing Eve. Comic killing Eve is another it. example of that. But Hannibal sustains that and builds that. It, got, it took a while to get to it. This you, spent way too short trying to get to this point and didn't really pull it off. Are you guys like me getting sick of these detached psychopath narratives? Like, I feel like it's it's almost like, at this point, feeling like a cheap, realistic... Ret- Everyone's ret- seen Sweeney Todd. We, 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 a lot of people are over that sort of, oh, another person in the um, pie oven. And, it's almost like you know. films made in response to a really violent, desensitizing world that are designed to desensitize you to violence. Like, I'm getting... The, the intellectual point isn't interesting enough at this stage to justify brutality do you kind of get what i mean oh i'm God. not like anti-violence in the movies but I, I i think you people more people should be asking themselves before they make a film what is this in service of is this saying something that hasn't been said all the time you know that's that's, that's a great question and i think we'll get back to it hopefully next week when we've seen when we've all seen trouble with being born because i think this question about what is a movie it's actually Service yes, that, of. That's a teaser yeah. for our future content. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good segue to that question. But even then, I, I feel a part of that is the apathy, apathy towards everything. And I think that's what, you know, these psychopathic narratives are really appealing to is the fact that in a way, maybe we we're all, all feeling apathy. We all don't care about anything. So we actually can relate to psychopaths because we, I don't know, okay, maybe it's a stretch. That's the idea I, on paper. Thanks for Sokolnikov. But that's I know. the thing. 
But I kind of feel like, you know, that the fact that, oh, we finally understand psychopaths because we're kind of inching towards that feeling of apathy towards everything. So we now understand psychopaths better than ever, in a way, but not really. <laughs> we, but we shouldn't. We don't want to be at that point. Exactly. And I think the film explores, the film doesn't really explore why we're at that point. It shows this guy in a not great situation, but not it's an why abstract we response. could relate or empathize to it. Sure, he's doing hard, uh, hard times money-wise, but we needed. No, that, that's it's why a it's a 75 minute movie. It's not psych- a TV no, but that's the reason why it's pure psychopathy. The, the more is there on the screen. It's like, it's because I want people to love my jacket. Like, I think that the film's only meant to exist on that kind of abstract level where we read into it. It's just here is a psychopath. What do you see in his going loose like this? Anyway, I thought it was okay. What about you guys? That was all right. I was engaged. I wish it was a 40 minute movie. Mm. Yeah, same. But also, absolutely. I, I did enjoy the prospect of watching a film and feeling actively engaged about what the other films I could be watching. <laughs> that was a different experience because I've I've not watched Hannibal, not, guys. It's it's, yeah. it's awesome. But I haven't I haven't gone into a movie for a long time where I've just kind of felt like you know indifferent or bored. At least I wasn't bored in this. I was just hoping for some other movie. <laughs> so, for me, it's it's only been as far away as uh, the Old God. That was a brutal watch. Anyway. Oh god! Uh, don't um, make films where all they're just a setup for a better sequel. So, Stop doing it two years. So Matthew Bulgin asked a question which should be on the mind of anyone watching Tearskin, <laughs> which is: Is it just a hack move to make a film where characters are making a film? This question was inspired by an SMH interview with Dupio. I just want to call him Monsieur Wazo because that's his artist name as a musician. I think it's way cooler. I mean, it's Mr. <laughs> Bird. But anyway, um, Monsieur Wazo said that he was a little bit embarrassed by the camera being in there, but um, he used to always do film within a film stuff, but he thought it was maybe justified because the guy isn't really a filmmaker. Matt came away wondering, like, is it still just hacky? And is Monsieur Wazo Dupio right to be embarrassed at using this prop? What do you guys think? I think it's overdone. I don't think it's hacky. I think there's a lot of great examples and a lot of bad examples. We reviewed The Disaster Artist a couple of years ago. I think it would be much better if it hadn't come out post the height of fever about the room. I think the book is much for enriching to the effect, but I did like the fact that the film exists as a testament to this little bit of history. It's a global phenomenon. Yeah. There are other examples of films. Ed Wood, we discussed, which is, is great. And certainly when the trend hadn't been done. Eight and a half, which is still but, in my all-time top 10. The, the, the way I look at it, filmmakers are going there's to so be... And the Dolce Vita, for that matter. Yeah, there's so many movies about movies. Filmmakers... Adaptation live, we covered a few weeks they, ago, it was they great. They live in the world of filmmaking. They're going to see and be inspired by universal things they see in the stories going on all around them. So inevitably, it's going to happen. I think it's just kind of similar to the serial killer nihilistic violence subgenre I was talking about just before, where it's... This has been done a lot. Is it worth doing it again? Uh, I guess if you're going down the self-indulgent pathways of somebody who's considering doing a film about somebody in filmmaking, then it's possible you don't have the self-assessment to honestly say, is this genius enough that I need to do it now? But I think I'm a bit biased about this because when I was little, my dad always used to, when we were starting to watch something, he would complain and go, ah, writers writing about writers. Like, and he'd roll his eyes. And <laughs> Try what you know. It's okay. He could he could be impressed by times that writers wrote about writers, but in general, he was skeptical from the start. And I think that's rubbed off on me. I think there's write what you know, but there's also the risk that you're a filmmaker and you love film, 
So you make films about film. And then it's just like, isn't this supposed to shine a light on the broader world? Is there a way that maybe you can take what you know and what you've learned from filmmaking and filter through that someone else's experience? Might that make the movie more inquisitive and, and interesting? I, it really comes down to if it has to be about film and if the idea is good enough to justify going to that potentially self-indulgent realm. I think there's a distinction that's to be drawn here between making a film about the process of filmmaking, i.e. voyeurism, likes of Rear Window, and making a film, which can be a commentary on this, but, it's, but the plot of background is really just about making a movie. Um, I like Rear Window. I like films that go into the I mean, Rear Window's different. ideas of filmmaking more than I do a film that is necessarily about filmmaking itself. Bowfinger is a great example. It's a film I always liked growing up. I have an affection for it. It's more, I feel, about the industry than filmmaking itself. And I like films I was that about Bowfinger. the industry in Hollywood. I haven't seen Ryan Murphy's new show, but apparently it's decent. There's a lot, and there's Hail Caesar. There's a lot of films that are about the industry as distinct from filmmaking, which I enjoy. But I think per se, and moreover, films that go into the structure and modes and ideations of filmmaking are much more interesting than a film that is set behind behind a camera. And well, again, that's what I mean about perfect. filtering. And again, Rear Window is a perfect example of that. But that's what I mean. Rear Window is like filtering the what you've learned from filmmaking through something else, through a different kind of imaginative experience. It's not, imagine if Rear Window was just a film set movie, you know, there's a difference. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about the, I know a few years ago, Birdman versus Boyhood debate and people were just- was uh, better. But people were just bagging Boyhood for being a hack movie, remember? And Boyhood, you know, you know, but this whole thing was like, oh, what a, what a hack move, what a gimmick to basically film something over 24 years. Because, and, and actually, I, I really thought Boyhood was great. And it was not just, it took away from the filmmaking elements because of this media campaign that was around, oh, it's a hack film. So I feel sometimes using this hack kind of thing really can... But many people take, were saying that Boyhood was a hack film. There was, there was some people were kind of like, oh, it took 12 years to make, therefore it's great. But it's, there was a it's backlash so against that. You know? There was, yeah. there was. There was quite a, quite a big backlash. But the, backla the backlash was, I think, uh, justified because they made that thing such a big part of the media campaign. And when you hear that, there's the question in the back of your mind, which is like, yeah, but is it good? Like, it is amazing that they did that. Some thought the film was great. I didn't, I think it's a film that got lost in the, you know, it's unfocused because of the... Yeah, I agree. time in development. But 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 even then, I, I doesn't I deserve didn't... praise just for being what it is. Like that, I, that's I, interesting. I, if it's but um, it's uh, only but, praiseworthy if it, if it's pulled off well. Beyond just admiring. Yeah, I I agree. But I feel sometimes uh, asking those questions about whether it's a hack or a gimmick takes away from all the other things the film. Is well, you approach everything with an open mind. Yeah, yeah. I I would say that, and there's bad examples. Like I I can't remember the name of the film, but. Anthony Hopkins film about making of Psycho. It's just a bad biopic. Hitchcock. It's by the number Hitchcock. It's just a bad biopic by the numbers going through an era of history and about we love this part of film. Why don't we make a movie about it without going into the details of Psycho or much more interesting stuff that surrounded the history of Psycho and the making of the movie and the controversies itself that the film engendered? You know, I read something in film news today. Ben Affleck's going to direct a movie about the making of Chinatown. Can I just say after Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? It's kind of getting weird that we have this fixation in current mainstream Hollywood entertainment on Roman Polanski. Like maybe we should be leaving that subject alone for a little bit. I think there are also examples of films about filmmaking that because they're purely playing on nostalgia rather than actually offering anything new. Um, to this point, we referred to The Artist earlier. I liked it, but I think it was very overrated 
for when you could otherwise have just gone and watched a better silent movie. The better film that year, which I didn't especially love, but was a very good one, was Hugo, which also riffed on classic Buster Keaton, classic filmmaking lore. And I like History of filmmaking. It felt like just, oh, here's the love letter to inside the beltway, what we've seen before. I think if it's going to work, and it's not because that the people don't watch films of that era, it's that a lot of films about filmmakers are made inside the beltway for the people in the industry. Edward's a bit of an exception to the rule where it certainly was that, but it has a much broader appeal. But I Same think as Dolomite is my name. Under the Hugo umbrella. I think Dolomite falls into the um, former category. It's much more broader and appealing, even though it does have definitely a cult niche core appeal at the same time. So I think making movies um, on a shoestring is an amazing effort and brings weird people together. I understand people being inspired by and wanting to tell those stories. But when you were talking about Hugo just then, it reminded me of how I complain about this every Oscar season, their response from the industry towards diminishing centralized importance of the film and the filmmaking industry has been- what happens. Yeah, has been to make a million movies about the glory and wonders of movies. So it's like the movies are always trumpeting their own importance. Shape of Water is, or Argo, like the artist. Goddamn La La Land. La La Land. All these things that got close to or won the Best Picture Oscar are just beating the same drum. And it's like, we get it. You guys are obsessed with yourselves. (laughs) Tell a different story. Really. Around the corner. There's a, obviously the Charlie Chaplin film from a while back, which obviously was about the character. I mean, it's a good film though. I like it. I haven't seen it. Chaplin is good. Just actually really good. It was just the time of, there was a lot of them. Yeah. Um, And if if you're going to tell a story about the history of filming, you can tell us, like, make a Hedy Lamarr movie and about all the stuff she did extraneous to her filmmaking. There's plenty of other stories out there that don't follow the, I won't say it's a hack route, but a hacky route. I feel like um, you can't ask for movies not ever to talk about movies or say that it's intrinsically a hack thing. Like as long as there's postmodernism or even modernism, people are going to be doing that. Like think about how many books use the device of a diary or letters or <laughs> writing, trying to write the story that you're reading now or, or some form of storytelling. That gets yeah. Little Women did it, combine the forms. Yeah, it's, it's a really intrinsic, like I think as, since modernism, that's been a thing in writing. Films are, like 80 <laughs> films are like 80 to 100 years behind the novel in terms yeah. of these meta aspects. But, but even then, I, I kind of feel like every profession or would like to have a spotlight on them. So if, you know, if doctors could know how to make movies as well, they'd also like to make movies about, oh, look, the medical profession is great. Or like if right, engin- right. engineers were also budding filmmakers, they'd also like, it's just that, you know, it's, it's literally a way to, I wouldn't say chastise yourself, but also because filmmaking is such a thankless art. Otherwise, yeah. if you think about it, you it's basically, it's, it's a grind. And also you are getting a bunch of people together to fulfill a vision that you don't know actually would come to life the way you really want it until you see it on screen. So, and everyone, but it's even worse for the people working with the director. And this goes back to what I said about the selfishness yeah. of filmmaking that I think yeah. he kind of hits on in a metaphorical yeah. way. So, so I, I think they, more, they, more, more, if you're an actor, the... you can't necessarily, until you get really clicked in with the project or any of the other collaborators, you can't actually see the film in the mind's eye like the director has. So you just have to trust that it's good. Pretty much. So actually more than, more than the hack thing, I think, I think if you're asking the question, the right question is about, is filmmaking inherently selfish? So I think that's a more dangerous question to ask. It's like, should filmmaking be pursued because it's inherently a selfish art form? You know, why, why, why do so many people come together basically fulfill the vision of one person, essentially? Yeah. It's a very pessimistic. I point to, uh, we always bring up every week, and the 
Nolan, and just quickly, the tenant update is that there's no tenant update. But <laughs> Nolan, uh, to my earlier point, makes films about the form of filmmaking without making it about the filmmaking memento and being a classic example of how we can progress through a narrative. The Prestige, which is not my favorite of these films, but goes through here's how a film's traditionally structured and here's how it plays out dramatically in parallel. Inception, obviously, the idea of film as dreams versus reality. And he does this really well. And I, li- I would like to see that approach more than a lot of the other approaches. He's see. trying to follow on from Hitchcock's example in a lot of ways, Nolan. I think there's a lot, of, there's a lot that's Hitchcockian about him. Um, oh, so just quickly, because we, I can't believe we didn't mention it, but hey, Sunset Boulevard, films about filmmaking. Again, film about the industry, yeah, films about filmmaking. That's great. And that works. Brilliant. And Walter didn't make film after film after film about filmmaking. Ace Hall is about the media more. All the other dramatic narratives made one film focusing on a particular era of Hollywood, a particular story, and it worked. That he had been unearthed. It was very controversial for the time. He had something to say. I mean, fil- films are No one else was story. saying on that level. Yeah. Film, films are about stories. Not in film anyway. Yeah. They might have been saying it in, in writing. I mean, think about it. If films are about stories, then why wouldn't you want to tell a story about the way stories are told, right? Mm. Yeah, and and if you do that in the mode of film, film is going to be what you filter that idea through. Just like how if you write about the mode of of telling stories in a book, you're going to default back to the book example because it lends itself Mm. to the, you know, synthesizing with with the form that the story has been structured in. Yeah, and it's more about the intention rather than the form. So I think being having a formalistic argument about why are we talking about filmmaking and about the medium when basically I'm watching a movie, you know, why should I watch a movie about the movies? Uh, it's like, you know, it's more about the intention and the intention is right and pure. And if you're trying to explore something which has some kind of merit and actually influences a life, the movies impact our lives quite a bit. I yeah. mean, we're all here because of the movies. This show exists because of the movies. So like, you know, it's, it's only fair that they get that kind of recognition. On that and on the meta aspects and to your earlier point for about what film subjects filmmakers or others make films about, it's interesting to note that there are, a lot, there are not a lot of films either predominantly or even in small respects about critics, about people like us who talk <laughs> about the movies. Okay. Now, there's a few reasons for this. I think that a lot of times filmmakers and creators aren't genuinely predisposed or pay attention to a lot of critics. When you do see depictions of critics in popular cinema or film or media or wherever, it's usually pretty bad. I referred to Birdman exa- earlier and the awful example of the critic in the bio hadn't seen the play and was just, I'm going to, I hate you. I'm going to destroy your play, which doesn't exist. Furthermore, there's the example of the critic in The Greatest Showman, who's just an awful character, a similar effect. He won't admit that he likes something. Critics aren't like that. I would like to see- The evil critic in Lady in the Water, Paul Giamatti. Uh, yeah, yes. I'd, I'd like to see better depictions. Well, I, this, I like nuanced depictions. Like that's an original story. Tell look, that. This one. goes into um, the the self indulgence we were talking about before, but it gets even worse because here it's like I have an axe to grind because someone didn't like my masterpiece, so I'm going to put these straw man <laughs> examples of critics in the movie. Also inside the Beltway. Hey, filmmakers, who's all the greatest showman? Ha ha. Yeah, we we know that. We know that guy. He criticized but, our movie. Right. But uh, it's like in in Galaxy Quest, um, the villain is huh. Saris after the great film critic Andrew Saris because he criticized something the writer made previously. Galaxy Quest was amazing. There was also the TV show, uh, the the critic with. Um, oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Never saw it. Which is actually a classic. I, I would recommend. This right, thing. where the critic gets to be the hero. But yeah, I was thinking of Ratatouille, which touches on a few of these things. One, it's it has this diametrical opposition, you know. Uh, 
great enemies, critics versus artists thing going on, but it tries to be a little more lenient towards the critic towards the end, which might've been one of the reasons why critics loved it so much. But it's a nice meditation on the role of the critic in that, at the end of that film. But it's also a film that's all about filmmaking. But instead of making the movie about a film studio, it's a kitchen with a little director um, rat, right? Like, <laughs> instead of making, yes, it is a rat. yeah, instead of making an animated movie about a rat who who's a film director, the movie just has this extra level of intrigue because it has a you know the theme has been transplanted to a different subject. It gives the filmmakers um, time to immerse themselves in a different kind of world and maybe learn something and put some of that experience of learning and being intrigued by a new subject into the film. You know, you, studying up on in the world of of cooking. Are you are you sure it's just a rat and not a V rat? I don't think it was you, but uh, <laughs> but, but you may correct me. But but so yeah, bad. I think it's just um, yeah. This goes into what what Glenn was saying. A lot of the time, unless it's really necessary for it to be about film, if it's confessional, like it's like Sunset Boulevard or Day for Night or something like that, then it's probably more interesting to put these ideas into something else, find empathy and connection with someone who shares things in common with you as a filmmaker without just making a film about a filmmaker. But it can work work in the cinema paradisos of the world. Right. I I agree. I mean, I I just just have a problem with the characterization when people go use the words hack or gimmick, because I think there's some, some way inwardly, I just kind of like, my teeth start sort of grinding me like, ah. Well, sometimes things are hacky and gimmicky. I, I know, but like there are better ways to express that frustration than reducing things to like hacky or gimmicky. Because I feel like those descriptions, much like, you know, some favorite words of critics and phrases like tour de force, et cetera, et cetera, are so overused that I'm just like, no. Well, no, you- the worst one is pretentious, where the meaning of that is split between what it actually means <laughs> and what people think it means, which is anything that tries to be a little bit beyond um, the norm and yeah. con- convention, anything that tries to be a bit beyond convention. But that's not pretentious. You can try to be beyond convention, but be extremely sincere. Yeah, that, that's pretension avant- is pretending. Yeah. Pretension is insincere. Beyond convention is avant-garde. Another word that's been overused by critics, but right. it's okay. Yeah. Shall we move a, to the next question? Yeah, the yeah, next sure. is the matter of the room we referred to earlier, uh, a film about filmmaking, and whether there are lynching aspects, yeah, Matt, or lynching aspects to it. Matt made the comment that watching The Room again recently, he just thought it felt like there was so much crossover with David Lynch, but he was worried that maybe does this just sound like sacrilege to even compare them? No, I I think they're getting at a similar place, but through very different paths. Um, Because I think- This had a Twin Peaks kind of vibe. Yeah, I I was going to say- Going for it. From Blue Velvet um, onward, like Blue Velvet, Twin Peaks, Wild at Heart, Mulholland Drive, have this kind of ironic depiction of folksy Americana that's inspired by 50s melodramas and the modes of a lot of 50s type filmmaking, as well as by soap operas. Whereas um, I think that there's an irony to it. it sometimes it feels like it's so sincere, but it, that it puts you into this uncomfortable state um, <laughs> where you feel vulnerable as a viewer. Um, whereas what Tommy Wiseau is doing is, I think Wiseau is a guy who genuinely loves a lot of Americana. Um, I think that the depiction of him in the book, The Disaster Artist squares with this. He's a guy who loves America, right? He loves American movies and, and it turns out American cliches from soap operas and melodramas. There's a reason the character's called Johnny. All right, American exactly. Johnny. Yeah, exactly. Um, the difference is just that Tommy Wiseau is a space alien. 
So David Lynch is a weird guy, but he's basically reasonable. He's not going to argue with you that you need to film the whole thing on, on film and on digital at the same time. Like he's basically eccentric, but a normal person. Whereas Rousseau is a guy, I think, who in attempting to write genuine, sincere um, drama ends up producing this strangely ironic, detached thing that makes you feel uncomfortable. <laughs> it's like the, uh, the emotion is so purely... Um, unfiltered, but the, yeah. when we go for high emotion, but if Lynch is only yeah. were nice to each other, the world yeah. would be a better place. I right, it was so impression. Yeah, can't. but David Lynch has a scene where where they talk about that in Blue Velvet, where Lord Kyle MacLachlan is like, "Why are people bad to each other? Why can't everyone be good?" But you know, Lynch realizes how shameless it is to do a close up of people doing really big emoting and crying like that and puts it in a surreal, creepy context to make you feel uncomfortable. It's that uncanny, whereas Tommy Wiseau is just an uncanny man. Everything about him, I think, is uncanny, and he's trying to make a soap opera. So you end up with something close to what Lynch is doing. I just don't think Wiseau is anywhere near as self-aware. Some people I, argue that Lynch is not self-aware, by the way, that he's actually purely sincere. But if you look at oh, all, I think he's very self-aware. Yeah. Well, if, if you've seen that monkey movie, he's very self-aware. Yeah. And if you look yeah, at all the interviews the, the of him. The perfect primer in all things Lynch. He definitely seems to have a little bit of a, a crooked smile going on in interviews and stuff when he's asked to explain his work. Like he definitely realizes this stuff's weird, whether he just plays innocent. Anyway. So. so that is us on Film Fight Club. Um, tune in next week. Let us know what you want us to fight about. And thank you for listening. Yeah, this was this was fun. This uh, was thank good. Thank you so much for your suggestion, Matt. I mean, this was a great discussion to have. This has been Glenn Fowlkins and Chris Evans of Right Nehru. Subscribe on iTunes and Spotify. Have a wonderful night. Enjoy movies. Good night.